The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Learn more at bluehost.com slash wondersuite. There is... A civilizational discourse that, of course, comes right up to the conquest of the new world, uh, in which the idea is that people who are not using the land to plant crops are uncivilized and the land can be legitimately taken from them. That was James C. Scott talking about the ways in which early civilizations developed. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with the renowned political scientist James C. Scott of Yale University. He is the author of a new book entitled Against the Grain, which offers some fascinating ideas about the nature of early human societies. James spoke to our world history editor, Matt Elton, who began by asking him to outline the book's key themes. For the last 26 years, colleagues here at Yale have run a program called Agrarian Studies, the program in Agrarian Studies. I am actually a part-time farmer as well, raised sheep for 20 years. Um, And we have a actually quite popular graduate uh, seminar of people from many different disciplines who uh, join a seminar, the title of which is The Comparative Study of Agrarian Societies. And I have given, uh, for quite some time, I had given the first two lectures um, of the uh, of the seminar on the domestication of plants and animals and the creation of the first states. And I was asked, I think in 2000, and, 
uh, eight or nine. Uh, <clears throat> if I would give the Tanner lectures at Harvard, which is a nice honor, I was pleased, but I had just finished another book and was enjoying a spell of what I call free reading without any ulterior motives. In any case, uh, so I decided, it, I asked myself if I could devise a project for myself uh, which in three months would uh, produce something worthy of the Tanner lectures. And the idea that came to me was that I knew my first two lectures on domestication of plants and animals in the first states were slightly out of date. I had uh, updated them from time to time, but I knew that they needed work. And I thought, well, the very least I can do is to go back and read the archaeology and ancient history of the early uh, agrarian uh, civilizations and write two better lectures uh, than the lectures I had been giving. The fact is I found out fairly quickly that my lectures were, in many cases, quite wrong and misleading. And it was uh, a little humiliating. Uh, and as a result... I, the, the actual lectures that I gave were more to register my astonishment at what I re had not realized uh, about the early forms of domestication and agriculture. And uh, then the next five years were spent um, devising this book, which is essentially a report of all the things we now know about uh, early agriculture and domestications, and which I include fire as well. Um, and so it's a, I, I contribute no new knowledge. Uh, what I do is to try to assemble in a provocative way uh, what we now know that contradicts the standard narrative that we have of civilization. That's so interesting. So it's been quite a learning process for you, this whole thing. Uh, yes, I, uh, a whole series of things um, astounded me. I think I had, like most of us, I suppose, bought the idea, obviously conveyed to me in grade school, if, an, uh, if not uh, somewhat later, that we managed to domesticate grains and that allowed us to settle down for the first time and build the complex civilizations that we come to know as the early civilizations in the Middle East. Um, and uh, I was astonished to find that the domestication of plants occurred uh, at least 4,000 years before anything like an agrarian society came into existence, and that sedentary communities um, of 1,000, 2,000 or more existed long before you had anything that looked like uh, an agrarian society. So uh, the standard narrative of domestication of plants and animals, finally we can settle uh, then we and stay in the same place as if that's what we had been longing to do for 180,000 years of species history. Um, that seemed to be um, thrown up in the air and uh, contested and shown to be wrong in several fundamental ways. I mean, how had we got it so wrong for so long, do you think? That's a good question, actually, uh, because, of course, the... Archaeologists have had it right for, I'm reporting back on what the archaeologists knew actually have discovered in the last 20, 30 years. So, for example, there's a place in um, 
I guess it's in Syria, uh, Abu Herrera. Uh, and that's one of the few places uh, in which you have a complete series from hunting and gathering and foraging to uh, fixed field agriculture. And so in one archaeological site, you can trace this uh, shift. And uh, they, of course, found that the discovery of domesticated plants, the major grains, the cereals, wheat and barley in particular, occurred long before uh, they played any major role in subsistence activities. And so the question, they understood uh, that people avoided a kind of strong reliance on agriculture for a long, long time. And most of those people also understood that the reason why they avoided it is because both it exposed them to new risks um, by having a very narrow uh, bandwidth of subsistence uh, uh, products, and that it was much more work. It involved a lot more drudgery. We we know that pretty um, conclusively these days that hunters and gatherers and foragers, even today when they're in unfavorable environments, actually spend relatively little time, uh, less than half of their time, on subsistence activities. Um, and they attain sufficiency without uh, contemporary abundance, of course, um, rather rather easily. And and so the reliance on plow agriculture in particular would have required a tremendous more work for a smaller return in calories, nutrition, and also a narrowing of the diet. How does this new kind of look at things change how we understand how villages were formed and then how those formed into states? Well, the first thing that I don't elaborate much, but it was astonishing for me, is that implicitly the assumption has been that for uh, – Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, uh, and it's only the last 10,000 years essentially, um, 11, uh, 12 maximum, in which we had domesticated plants. And I think the assumption was that we were – Mobile, mobile people because of foraging and hunting and gathering, and that once we domesticated plants, we uh, immediately wanted to settle down. The assumption being that uh, moving uh, mobility was a uh, was onerous, was uh, an infliction of some kind, a flick, affliction of some kind or other, um, and so the. The idea of an innate homo sapiens desire to stop in one place and live your whole life there uh, is built into this narrative when, in fact, we have discovered, of course, in the, in, in the, in the process of colonialism and European uh, conquest of the New World, that when we tried forcibly to settle down mobile nomadic peoples into one place permanently, we've had a war on our hands. And most Native Americans, of course, were only made into sedentary peoples. Uh, on the basis of the loss of military um, contests and being placed forcibly on reservations. And so the idea of the, the desire to settle, the desire for sedentism, seems to be a crucial mistake. And the other mistake, of course, is that sedentary communities did not exist before we uh, domesticated plants and animals. 
And what were the key steps in the formation of villages in this case? Oh, that's actually astounding for me as well. And I owe a lot of that to a great geographer, Jennifer Pornell. Uh, And it turns out, of course, that we have this idea of the Middle East as being an arid zone in which if you have agriculture at all, you have it because of irrigation. Uh, When in fact, at 6,000, 6,500 B.C., uh, the southern alluvium of Mesopotamia, and between the Tigris and Euphrates uh, rivers, uh, uh, was a wetland. That is to say, the level, the, the sea levels were uh, 300 feet or more above what they are today. And the result was that this was a wetland, um, an abundant wetland region in which it dried out partially for part of the year, but the, um, the the amount of marine resources in these wetlands, the migrations of animals, birds, fish, uh, and so on, and the different ecological zones, both uh, a brackish water zone and a freshwater zone that uh, shifted often, um, the uh, because it's a very flat plain, so the tide comes in uh, very, very far, and the water level in Mesopotamia was much higher. It, it came up to the doors, if you like, of Ur and Uruk and Eridu, the very earliest uh, agrarian civilizations, and it was this wetland abundance that made possible the creation of permanent trading settlements. Basically, it's not that the people were uh, there. Uh, often permanently, but they were permanent communities of traders and so on uh, uh, that grew to as many as four, three, four thousand, according to her. That's quite big, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And one thought that that would be impossible. And the fact is that there were so many ecological zones of abundance quite close to them that they didn't have to move a great deal. Now, again, we have to be careful of this assumption that people don't want to move. Um, Most of the uh, foragers and hunters and gatherers have periods when they disperse uh, for certain kinds of hunting activities and other periods when they aggregate over time. And one suspects that this was the case in the southern alluvium as well. You'll notice that there was a kind of easy agriculture It's called flood retreat agriculture, and the fact is that when the floods uh, are at their high point, uh, they bring silt, and then they gradually retreat into the channel of the river, and they they destroy the competing vegetation. Uh, They then leave a deposit of silt, which is rich in nutrients, and all you have to do is to scatter some seeds. And so there was a kind of easy agriculture that was practiced, but it was practiced only for a small portion of the subsistence resources that people wanted. Mm. So for people who might not know, what sort of plants are we talking about during this period? And what impact do these new forms of living have on those plants? Oh, Oh, that's a great question. Um, Of course, all of the plants that we domesticate are changed in the process of domestication. Some of them in a 
conscious, deliberate way and some of them in an unconscious uh, way. So, for example, we select for certain characteristics that help us as agriculturalists. We would like, for example, the seed the seeds to remain in their pods until we get them back to the threshing floor. And so we select for what's called non-shattering uh, varieties uh, in which you can cut them and take them back to the threshing floor and save most of the seed. Uh, in the wild, it's to the advantage of the plant uh, to shatter easily and drop its seeds uh, over a long period of time. It, in a sense, um, uh, that favors the the survival in the wild of that plant. We favor big seeds. We favor long, uh, short dormancy so that they will all germinate at the same time. And so, like domesticated animals, actually, uh, all of our domesticates are changed by our selection uh, for certain characteristics over time. And in, in passing, I should add that one can still find in places in Anatolia stands of wild wheat that are so dense that you can actually collect enough wild wheat in a couple of weeks in order to feed a family of four for an entire year. Um, and so these people who were not agriculturalists actually had threshing baskets and flails and sickles and so on, all of the implements, if you like, uh, of an agricultural people, but they were using them on... Uh, stands of wild grain. So we're talking about grain when we talk about these kind of plants then primarily or others as well? Oh, there are, there's a uh, one of the major points of the book is that all of the early states are dependent no matter where they are in the world on one major cereal grain whether well we had to have millet to that in the Yellow River Valley but uh, <clears throat> wheat and barley in the Middle East um, rice of course, in most of Asia and millet along the Yellow River and maize, of course, in the New World. And what's interesting to me is that we, of course, had other uh, plants that we had domesticated, um, uh, including roots and tubers, uh, lentils, uh, chickpeas, and so on, that were domesticated at roughly the same time. What's interesting, of course, is that they were unsuitable for the tax man, and so they never became the basis of the, if you like, the state grain uh, rationing and taxation system. As these new states formed, who were the winners and losers? Well, these, uh, you mean among Homo sapiens? Yes, yes. Uh, well, what's interesting, of course, is it, two things. Um, I could step back very uh, mildly to the consequences of the domestication. And so a major chapter of the book is devoted to the epidemiological consequences of this crowding of domesticated animals, domesticated plants, and human beings for the first time in really large concentrations. We have in, I think, Uruk um, uh, 6,000 years ago, you have maybe 40,000 people in the same place. And this is 
completely unprecedented in human history, this concentration. And the consequences of this are actually all of the infectious zoonotic diseases that move between domesticated animals and human beings. So measles, mumps, chicken pox, I could, the list could go on for almost ever. Uh, but the point is that these were diseases that simply did not exist before this crowding phenomenon of the early states and early concentrations of sedentary communities. And the disease that uh, most of the zoonotic infectious diseases move between our domesticated animals and us over time. They jump the species gap, and it's only because of the crowding that they do this. The fact is that the domesticated animals, because they're crowded, are more likely to experience epidemics uh, themselves, uh, that is to say animal flock epidemics, if you like. Uh, human beings are likely to experience these epidemics. And because the crops themselves are similar genetic individuals all crowded together on fields for the first time, they are subject to crop diseases or crop epidemics. So the point is that these early states were extremely unstable, not only politically and environmentally, but they were in extremely unstable from an epidemiological point of view. And so they often collapsed over time. Uh, uh, and when an epidemic broke out, of course, people ran away from these uh, early cities uh, as quickly uh, as they could. So to address your question of winners and losers, the point is that um, the mortality rates and diseases of these early cities meant that they were uh, unhealthy places to be. Uh, the, your chances of dying at an early age were greater than, it, than they were for people outside uh, these early states. And uh, the skeletal remains of people in the agrarian states versus hunters and gatherers show much more evidence of uh, systematic nutritional diseases, especially iron deficiency anemia. So these were not healthy places to be, and they were therefore unstable. Of course, if we're talking about 4,000 BC, uh, the number of people in these cities as a unit, as a proportion of world population, was extremely small. These were, the people in these early civilizations were almost a rounding error in the world's population. So most of the people uh, uh, who inhabited the globe 6,000 BC, 4,000 BC, uh, were outside any form of state. Uh, and I argue that it's actually quite late in human history that people experience tax collectors uh, in most of the world, for that matter. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. 
Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Given that these states were so uh, unstable, what uh, methods and how did leaders try to cement their power on these states? All of the states, without exception, were slave states. And they all had a population problem. That is to say, uh, they both had high, although they had high rates of birth, um, they also had high mortality rates and they had people running away regularly. And so the problem of the early states was to replenish their population. Um, I mean, we both know that Western European cities until the mid-19th century never reproduced themselves demographically from within their own population. There were too many epidemics. And if cities grew before we had clean water and sewage um, in roughly the mid-19th century, uh, they grew by bringing in more people from the countryside. Uh, And the same, of course, was true for these early states. And so uh, most of the wars... Uh, that one discovers in these early states are what I call wars of capture. That is, they're uh, rarely about the control over territory because the problem is you can't grow grain very far from the palace and easily ship it uh, and control it. So the object of warfare was by and large to capture populations who could be resettled back at the center as slaves or um, as bonded labor of one kind or another. So for example, in the early Mesopotamian in Uruk, um, the symbol in cuneiform uh, for slave is the combination of the symbol for woman and uh, mountain. Uh, and it suggests, as we know that they did, that there were expeditions to um, uh, capture mountain people, especially women and children, uh, and bring them back and settle them at the court. Now, we're talking about maybe 9,000 people out of a total of 45,000, but that is a fairly substantial portion of uh, slaves. These early states were quite small. When you get to Greece, um, of course, both uh, Athens had a majority, a a big majority uh, of slaves. Most of them uh, were not so visible because they worked in the um, in the quarries and silver mines that were the basis of Athenian uh, wealth. Uh, and Sparta, of course, settled down on the backs of a existing agrarian population and essentially enslaved uh, them. And of course, Rome was about a third slaves. So what's interesting to me about the 
early states is that they had this population problem that they solved by capturing people outside the state uh, and forcibly resettling them. And in many cases, these people became full members of the community after a fairly brief period of time. It wasn't chattel slavery in the North Atlantic uh, form that we are most familiar with, at least in America. Do we get a sense of how people in these early states viewed people who lived outside of them? Uh, There are two things. One of them is that people are moving back and forth all the time. Uh, So this idea that we have people inside the state and people outside the state is probably wrong for a long period uh, during which people, depending if there's an epidemic or if there's a crop failure, people move out and take up more mobile forms uh, of subsistence. So... We mustn't think that these are hermetically sealed uh, state people and non-state people who are not moving back and forth all the time. So people in their own lifetime are likely to have experiences of uh, both inside the state and outside the state. That said, the official ideology of all of these states um, is... uh, an ideology of we are the civilized people and the people outside the state are the barbarians. Um, And that is often linked to grain eating. Uh, That is to say, the Romans thought of themselves as um, uh, wheat eaters and uh, barley eaters and the Gauls as consumers of uh, animal flesh and uh, and dairy products. Of course, it wasn't quite the 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 truth. Uh, the Gauls also planted uh, crops as well. Uh, but if you like, the civilizational symbolism was that the people in the civilization are basically grain eaters, and the people outside it uh, are. Uh, are not civilized partly because of their dietary habits and um, partly because of other characteristics like the clothes they wear and the fact that they move around. For the Chinese, this would be the difference between rice eaters and non-rice eaters or in the Yellow River between people who eat millet uh, and people who uh, hunt and gather outside these areas. And so there is um, a civilizational discourse that, of course, comes right up to the conquest of the new world uh, in which the idea is that people who are not using the land to plant crops are uncivilized and the land can be legitimately taken from them, the terra nullis uh, hypothesis in which uh, Native Americans were seen to have no claim to the land because they weren't putting it to productive use and productive use meant uh, grain Uh, as in our unofficial national anthem, the reference to amber waves of grain, which are the sign of a civilized landscape. What kinds of cultural achievements did these very early states produce? Oh, the cultural, I think it's completely undeniable that these uh, concentrations of, uh, of later on kingly power, uh, merchant power, these uh, early states, uh, produce concentrations of uh, economic activity and trade, uh, artisanal specializations, you know, all of the, most of the things that we find in museums, if you like, uh, from the early civilizations are the products of these concentrations of early states and also the monumental building uh, as well. And so uh, uh, the point that 
I make uh, in a chapter called Collapse as Redistribution, I think I call it. Um, the, uh, there are all of these periods of dark ages when um, civilizations seem to disappear. It happens. It's extremely common. And these are, of course, seen as tragedies, as the blinking out of uh, luminous centers of civilization and achievement. Um, in fact, uh, for most of the people in these uh, situations, my guess is that uh, they left these centers because of diseases or taxes or civil war and so on, and that the disappearance of the center might have been for many of the people who then dispersed uh, and knew how to take care of themselves uh, when in a crisis situation, that it was actually an improvement of their welfare, um, this dispersion. Uh, and it's recorded, of course, in history as a dark age, a dark age meaning that we no longer have all the baubles that we want to put in the British Museum uh, and so on. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting here I want to pay tribute to contemporary archaeology as opposed to historic archaeology. It used to be that, if you like, the only way you got into the history books, and that's why these early states occupy such a huge role in our ancient histories, is that if you leave all your rubble in one place, right, and you build in stone, um, then the archaeologists find all of your stuff in one compact place, and they're able to figure out uh, what was going on, and this then results in museum exhibits and so on. But if, as for most of the population, uh, you spread your trash while, uh, uh, widely, uh, and you don't leave these concentrations of monumental building, uh, you disappear from the history books, although your history may have been in many respects in terms of the invention of domesticated crops uh, and uh, Neolithic techniques may have been actually more interesting than what was happening in, uh, in the cities. When does this part of the human story come to an end, or do you think it's fairer to say that it's actually still going on in some parts of the world? It went on for far longer than we're likely to assume uh, in the following sense, um, that all of these early societies, states, actually de before modern transportation, um, depended on the concentration of grain and manpower in a very small space. Uh, just because of the logic of transportation. So and unless you have navigable water, which uh, changes the calculus slightly. Um, so let me, I'll give you an example in passing. In, I am told that in 1800 before the steamship, it's faster to go from Southampton, England, uh, to the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa than it is to go by stagecoach from London to Edinburgh. Um, I worked this out, actually. It's about true. Uh, of course, people didn't go from on stagecoach from London to Edinburgh. They went by sea. Um, but the point is that uh, that it's very difficult to move uh, over land, especially if it's rugged land, uh, uh, grain or any other important subsistence commodity very far. And so all of the early civilizations are based on floodplains, alluvial floodplains. Uh, that is the only place uh, in which you can concentrate 
uh, monocrop cereals and human beings in one place and have a kind of surplus that the state can appropriate. Um, notice, by the way, that there are no taro states, no potato states, uh, no cassava states, and that's because um, those crops grow underground. Although they get ripe in a year, they can be left in the ground safely and be eaten two or three years later. Uh, the advantage of cereal crops for the state is that they all grow above ground. Uh, they get ripe at a, almost exactly the same time. If the tax man wants them, uh, they can come and take them, or better yet, wait till you put them in the put it in the granary and confiscate the contents of the granary. Or if they don't like you, they can burn your crops when they're ripe in the field, and you have to disperse. So in that sense, you need the cereal, the cereal grains, uh, as well as this concentration of population. I'm. I'm wandering a bit, but uh, wandering a bit. But the point is that all of these early civilizations uh, have to have a floodplain, and so they are creatures of a particular ecology. And the way they expand is to hop through an archipelago of different floodplains, and if they colonize new places, it has to have these certain ecological characteristics—a kind of manpower grain ecological module. And, and let's remember that they represent now a very special new ecology in the world of the domus, the hearth, the domesticated animals, the crops, the human beings, and all of the uninvited guests who come into this ecology, the rats, the mice, the sparrows, the fleas, the ticks, uh, all the parasites of the animals and human beings and who find it good to eat at this uh, particular place. And so we create a completely new ecological module by our settlement patterns. And that goes on, I think, um, all of the people outside these floodplains and alluvial plains um, are potentially beyond the reach of the state for much of human history until we get to the 16th or 17th century, I think. That was James C. Scott. Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States is out now in the UK and the US, published by Yale University Press. And if you'd like more global history, then don't forget to check out our new bi-monthly publication, BBC World Histories, which is available in all good news agents and now by subscription. Head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash world histories to find out how you can get it delivered to your door. Now, before we go, I've got a quick favour to ask you. We're currently running a survey to find out more about your interests in history. And it would be fantastic if lots of podcast listeners could take part. You'll find the survey at historyextra.com forward slash big history survey. And if you're one of our UK-based listeners, you could win a £100 Amazon voucher. And if you're not in the UK, we would still be very keen to hear from you to ensure we can tailor our output to needs of our audiences across the globe. Well, that's about all for today. But please do listen in on Thursday, where we'll be talking about Alfred the Great. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. 
Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. <laughs>